Uh, very familiar to most of us here, this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels. Which is interesting because you wouldn't think that, you might think another miracle is somehow more important, but it gives you a sense of the importance of this miracle that each one of the followers would say, hey, we've got to make sure this is in our account. And this chapter, 71 verses long, which we only just got through the beginning here in the first 15 verses, is is so dense. It's, it's so rich as you, you bite into it. There's, there's just more flavor here than you can really um, taste. But most of us, or at least many of us, are limited in tasting that richness because we're not familiar enough with the Old Testament. When we, when we come to the New Testament, and particularly a passage like this, we don't, we don't have the Old Testament sort of coursing through our veins, as it were. It's not coursing through our minds, so we miss uh, much of what John and Jesus intends for us to pick up on. Yeah, I, I thought about this. I thought it's, it's, it's similar to not, not having this Old Testament background is similar to not having taste buds at Thanksgiving. I mean, you're, you get hungry, you, you've waited all day, and you're like, man, I'm hungry. I'm, I'm, I wish we were eating at noon instead of three or whatever, you know, your time was. And, and you can see and you can smell, you can see the sweet potato casserole and the turkey and the, and the stuffing. You know, don't you like stuffing? That, what a great name for Thanksgiving. And it's gravy and you've got the Parker House rolls that already have a lot of butter built into them, but you know more butter is going to be applied externally. And you can see the, the pumpkin pie or the pecan pie or the apple pie. I mean, you're hungry. You're ready to eat. You're, you're ready to come to the table. But you don't have any taste buds. And you would still come to the table because you're hungry. And you would eat. And you would leave like everyone else. And you'd say, man, I'm full. But man, you would have missed so much. I mean, who wants to come to the Thanksgiving table and not have any taste buds and say, well, you know, it smells good, but it all tastes the same. And so when when we don't have these Old Testament taste buds, we come and we can get something from the text. We can maybe walk away full, but there's so much more richness. There's so much more flavor in the text when you when you have some of this Old Testament background. John's gospel doesn't contain a lot of Old Testament, a lot of direct quotes from the Old Testament. Instead, it's just like his his book is saturated with the Old Testament. He doesn't need to quote it because just everything he's talking about has an Old Testament background and no chapter more saturated than chapter six. Look back. To the end of chapter five, you probably don't even need to turn back because it's the last two verses in chapter five. Do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And he's, he's, he's looking at these Jewish people and saying, if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe My words. 
See, see, Jesus is, we talked about this week, last week, he's in Jerusalem, he's in the middle of the temple, it's, it's the middle of this great Jewish festival, and he's speaking to these Jewish people, and he's saying, if you really believed in Moses, if you really saw who Moses was, then you would see me. He, he's, he's looking at these people and saying, guys, you, you know Moses. You, you remember his life. You remember his actions. You remember the things that surrounded his life. L- look at Moses, read about Moses, and then make the connection. Move from Moses to me. Moses was writing 1500 years ago, and he was pointing and he was talking about me, and, and I've arrived. And he's trying to help them move from the Old Testament, this shadow, into the reality, which is Jesus. The New Testament is full of these connections between Moses and Jesus. We've seen them already. John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip finds Jesus, and when he does, he goes and finds his friend Nathaniel. And he says to his friend, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. You see, in other words, if you've read the law that Moses wrote and you've read it correctly, you're going to see Jesus. And and I know the law and I've seen now Jesus has come. John chapter three, 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the son of man must be lifted up. And again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. These people had been bitten by a poisonous snake, and so they had to go and look at this snake up on a pole in order for them to be healed. And now Jesus is using that imagery and saying, hey, there's another kind of poison that's coursing through your system, and you need to see someone else up on a pole, and when you really see him, then you're going to be healed. And so all this Old Testament imagery, that if it's coursing through your minds, then you see it so clearly when you come to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses, and the whole chapter is about that. You remember in Luke chapter 24, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they have they just can't quite figure out what's been going on in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes up to them and says, how foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and enter his glory? And then Jesus, beginning with Moses. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures about himself. So he goes back and tells these people who are familiar with Moses. Remember this about Moses? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's me. It was just a shadow. Now the reality has taken place. And a very unique event, Luke chapter 9. You remember uh, three disciples are with Jesus up on a mountain. And there's, it's the mountain of transfiguration. And this cloud descends and these two figures sort of come out of nowhere. Who are they? Elijah and Moses. And you get the sense that the three disciples are standing sort of a little bit away. And and Jesus and Elijah and Moses are having this conversation. And Luke records the conversation saying this. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment. And of course, when you read that in the English, you would think, well, they're talking about Jesus's death. But the word departure in the Greek, the word that Luke intentionally chooses is the word exodus. 
It's, it's no small clue what he's really talking about here. They're talking, Moses is telling Jesus, or they're having this conversation about Jesus' exodus. And so what you're meant to read when you see that is, oh, there was a there was a previous exodus. There were a group of people who were imprisoned, enslaved, and they had no way out. And someone came and brought them into the promised land. Now there's an ultimate exodus. There's the real Moses that's going to come, and he's going to free his people, and he's going to take them from their slavery and sin and bring them into the promised land. Well, you, we could go on and on in the New Testament about these connections between Moses and Jesus, but we don't need to go any further than this chapter. Because if you have Moses and the Exodus in your mind, and then you reread the chapter, you see it so clearly. Chapter 6, verse 2. These people had witnessed many miraculous signs, and so they follow after Jesus. The Hebrews had witnessed many miraculous signs, and so they follow after Moses. Jesus goes up on a mountain. Moses goes up on a mountain. Verse 4, the, the Passover feast was at hand. This was the last of the plagues, you remember? You're in a house, and in order for death to pass over your house, a perfect lamb has to be slain, and the blood of the lamb has to be on the door frame of your house. And when the angel of death comes over, then that angel will pass over your home. Death will pass over to all those who live underneath the blood of the lamb. Verse 11, out in the wilderness... Jesus provides bread for thousands of people, like manna from heaven. And look in verse 14. They, the, the people get it. You, get, you, you understand. Look at, look at ver, verse 14 with me. When the people saw this sign, this, this miraculous feeding of this thousands of people out in the wilderness, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. In other words, we know that there was a person who was going to come into the world and he was going to be like Moses. And we know that because in Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses says this to the Israelites, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. And so they say, this is it. They're they're beginning to make the connections. They see all these connections and they say, well, you know, Moses, who we know, began to talk about this other prophet. He must be the prophet. And if you just sort of ended your reading in this chapter in verse 15, that was sort of the end of your reading for the day. And you just sort of went on your way. You would say, man, that's great. Finally, these people are sort of getting it They're They're understanding who Jesus is. And you'd be so excited, except. That the chapter doesn't end in verse 15. What seemed to be going so well in verse 15 ends up going so badly by the time you get to the end of the chapter. Look at verse 66 with me. After this, after a long discussion about who Jesus really is, which is not who the people wanted Jesus to be. After this long discussion, people began to desert Jesus. Uh, the, the crowd disperses. In verse 51, a grumbling, or 61, a grumbling sets in. 
And then it concludes with many of Jesus' own disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. I mean, what happened? This, this great feeding of 5,000, these people who are beginning to make the connection and here just a few verses later, now you've got a, all these people are leaving. It's been an uphill climb here for Jesus in these opening chapters, if you can just think about the momentum. Jesus comes out and he has his first sign at the, the wedding in Cana. He turns the water into wine, and then in the next chapter, he meets Nicodemus, the the powerful, political, religious broker of the time. Everybody knows Nicodemus' name. And he comes, remember, in the darkness to find Jesus. He comes out of the darkness and into the light of Jesus, and they have this discussion about being born again, and Nicodemus just doesn't get it. And so he walks out of the light of Christ, and he walks back in to the darkness. Chapter Five, there's a paralyzed man who'd been sitting at a pool for 38 years. And Jesus comes up and just heals him. Totally a gift. And the man walks away, doesn't even get Jesus' name. And John never tells us that the man actually gets who Jesus is. Jesus comes back and says, man, your real problem is not your external paralysis, it's your internal paralysis. And your answer for your external paralysis was me. And your answer for your internal paralysis is me. But all we know from this man is they just go. He goes back to the authorities and say, yeah, that guy over there, he's the one that healed me. You have no understanding or no sense that this guy really gets who Jesus is. And then here in chapter six, five thousand people are fed. Yet, if you read through the whole chapter, what happens is that Jesus wasn't willing to become their butler. See, they find him the next day and say, guess what? We got hungry again. You know how that is. You go to Thanksgiving table. You're like, I can't eat for like a month. Five hours later. Hmm. What's in that refrigerator? We got some leftovers. I mean, you get hungry again. And these people who were so full and, and the text was so clear and saying they had all that they could want. In fact, there was stuff left over, 12 baskets. So every disciple had a sort of object lesson of what had happened here. And the next day they're saying, you know, we're getting hungry. Let's go back and get this Jesus fellow to keep providing the golden corral for us every day. And Jesus says, hey, that's not what I'm here for. And then in this discussion, he says, you know what? You need bread. You don't need just physical bread. You need an internal bread. And I am that bread. He's making this connection and they don't like his connections. And so they began to desert him. And I would say the main problem here for the people in this chapter is Not their enthusiasm, but their misplaced enthusiasm. They had become enthusiastic for the wrong Jesus. Look at verse 14 and 15 in chapter 6. You see here that these people on the spot, they say, hey, this is the prophet. And verse 15, let's go ahead and make him king by force. So so this sounds good. It sounds like, hey, we want Jesus to be our king. He is a king. He's come to say, I am the king. And we're just going to go ahead and make him king. That would sort of sound good. Like, okay, good. But it's not good because he's got to be the king that they want him to be. In, In other words, this king has to be going in the direction that I'm going. 
in order for me to follow him. As long as this Jesus is going to come and get rid of the Romans, as long as this Jesus is going to come and, and feed me, as long as this Jesus is going to come and reestablish our dominant position, Israel, in the world, then let's make him king. Let's follow him. And you hear how political it is? As long as he gets rid of our enemies, as long as he makes sure we're dominant as a country, and as long as I have food to eat, then we'll make him king. And I'll follow that person. Boy, that's so similar to our politics. I will vote for him as long as he gets rid of the Democrats. Or the Republicans. Or the terrorists. Or as long as he reduces the debt. And I want to make sure this person reestablishes our dominance in the world. And he better give me a job. It's really the same thing. And if we can get one candidate to do that, he can be king. It's so easy to make somebody or something king in your life. And these people are prepared to make this Jesus king. But this isn't the kind of king Jesus intends to be. And when they find that out, then they're not interested in following the real Jesus. It's very easy to be enthusiastic for Jesus when you're following or that when the Jesus you are following is designed to supply all the things that you want. It's very easy to be enthusiastic for Jesus when the Jesus you design is going to supply all the things that you want. I mean, you can lift your hands, you can pray out loud. But it could be that you're following a designer Jesus. You're following a fake Jesus. You've created Jesus in your own image and said, he certainly would think just like I would. And so I will follow after that Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening in this text. They see Jesus and they say, well, surely he thinks a lot like us and he can actually get this stuff done. Let's follow him. And I think it's easy to say for some of us, yeah, oh, man, people do that. I know some of those people. And I would want you to be careful if you think that. If you think, well, that guy on television, he preaches the prosperity gospel. He's created this image of the American Jesus and he's selling that Jesus. Maybe he is. But, but I want us to all collectively be careful because all of Jesus' closest disciples got it wrong. You remember when Jesus comes to his disciples and says, hey, who wants to be first? Ooh, Twelve hands. Choose me, 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 me. See, my hand is higher than everybody else's. I'm really interested in being first. Great. Glad I got the enthusiasm. Everyone here, everybody's excited. Okay, here's how I can guarantee you'll be first. Everybody's leaning forward. Okay, in this world, you've got to be last. I mean, somehow I imagine Peter looking at John and saying, I saw your hand raised. Give it a shot. At another dinner party, he looks and says, who wants to be the greatest? 
You want to be the greatest. <gasps> okay, got, I've got the plan. Knock down, guarantee, be the greatest plan. Okay, in this world, you have to be a slave to everyone. Uh, you see, that's not the Jesus I'm following. If the Jesus I'm following makes me first and greatest in this world, who wants that? Everybody. All hands up. But, oh, I, to be the greatest in this world, you have to lay down your life for everybody? Uh, you know, being the greatest is overrated. Who really wanted to be the greatest anyway? You see, it's so easy to design a Jesus in our own image and then follow after that Jesus, and really we're following after a fake Jesus. And it's so easy for everyone to do, not just this crowd, not just the prosperity gospel, but his own disciples can't really see who Jesus is. Jesus is leading a group of people. And Jesus has made it perfectly clear where he's leading these people. If anyone wants to follow after me, he must supply himself and take up his comfort and follow after me. See, that's really how our version reads. If anyone wants to follow after me, you've got to supply yourself and take up your comfort. Because those are the most important things that I'm well stocked and I'm comfortable, then I'm ready to follow. But what does Jesus say? Anyone who wants to follow after me must deny himself. Take up your cross and follow after me. And he is leading people, but it's those people who really understand the real Jesus that are real followers of the real Jesus, not the designer Jesus. And so we need to ask ourselves here this morning, are you enthusiastic for the real Jesus? Or are you just enthusiastic for your designer Jesus? I mean, I'm wondering how many of us might be like Peter. Remember when Peter says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Jesus said, you got it right. And then Peter, Jesus says, hey, Peter, let me get let me give you some inside information. Let me give you some direction on where I'm planning on going. I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. And what does Peter say? Uh, hey, I'm not going that way. I, I hadn't intended for you to be going that way. So, Jesus, let's not go that way. Let's go in a different way. In fact, I have a great plan for you, Jesus. You go the way I want you to go. Then I'm willing to follow. And so we need to constantly be asking ourselves, this text, John is asking us, hey, are you following the real Jesus or are you following your designer Jesus? And when the designer Jesus turns into the real Jesus and he asks you to lay your life down, are you like, ah, you know, I'm not into that. Jesus in this chapter is doing the same thing he's been doing in these previous chapters. He's taking some external reality and trying to make an internal connection. So he's done it with the paralyzed man. He's done it with the woman at the well. He's done it with Nicodemus. He's saying, hey, there are some things out here you can see. And I'm trying to use these things to help you see something inside that you can't see about yourself. And so in this text, which reads much like these other texts, he's saying there is somebody, you know, Moses, and I'm going to try to use him to point to somebody you don't know. That's me. There is something you're familiar with bread, and I'm going to try to use it to point to something that you need. That's an internal hunger and only I can 
satisfy that. If you look at verses 26 and 27, it just reads so similar to the, the passage of the woman at the well. Jesus, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. And then in verse 34, and they said to him, sir, give us this bread. You see, it's very similar to the woman at the well. Okay, I'm interested in this water. I'm interested in this bread. Would you give this to me? And Jesus is is trying to help them see it's an internal thing. I'm I'm not here to lend my power to satisfy your already existing appetites. I'm here to lend my power so that you have a brand new appetite. See, I'm not here to make sure you have a boyfriend. I'm not here to make sure you have a good grade. I'm not here to make sure you have a job. I'm not here to make sure you have great health. I'm not here to make sure you have great comfort. I haven't come to live, lend my power to you to get the things that you're already hungry for. The problem is you're hungry for things that don't last. You're laboring for things that don't last. I've come to lend my power to create a brand new hunger and a hunger for something that's never going to perish. It's never going to go away. And I'm trying to use these external realities in your life to help you see there's an internal reality you need to be aware of. It reminds me of Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Even lions, the psalmist is saying, even the strongest grow weak and weary. But those who seek the Lord, they lack no good thing. So, so he's coming to say, look, you, you, you're putting all this energy into things that don't last. He's not saying you're never going to work. He's just saying you, you need to have me as the priority, me as the center, not your work, not another person, not anything else. I, you've got to be laboring for me. I've got to be at the center. And I'm the center. I'm the bread. Verse 35. Many of you are familiar with this famous quote from. Uh, the accountant of John D. Rockefeller. When John D. Rockefeller died, he was maybe the wealthiest man in America. And apparently, uh, seems to be well recorded that somewhere around or at his funeral, somebody came up to John D. Rockefeller's accountant and asked the accountant this question. Uh, can you tell me how much John D. Rockefeller left behind? And the accountant in his famous quote said, yeah, I can tell you exactly how much he left all of it behind. You see, you're going to leave it all behind. And Jesus knows that. He said, you've got to labor for something. You've got to have something at the center of your life that you don't leave behind. Something that goes from this world into the next world. I'm that person. Yes, you're going to have to work. Yes, you're going to have to eat. Yes, you're going to have to drink. But all those are pictures of some much greater reality. All of those things you're going to leave behind. But your appetite for me is going to transcend that and it's going to go into eternity. I'm that person. Focus on me. See me. And John and Jesus are pleading with us this morning to see who he is, to labor for things that carry over from this world 
into the next world. See, if you had an unlimited credit card and you didn't need sleep, you could have gone out at midnight on Black Friday. And you could have gotten all the stuff you wanted. But I bet by today, you'd still be looking for one more thing. See, it's just not going to satisfy. And Jesus knows that internal hunger. He's trying to get you to tap into it and say, there's something else. Isn't there? Isn't there something else? Yes. And then he's going to say, it's me. Well, in this conversation, somebody asked a great question. I want to close with Jesus' answer. Verse 28. Okay, Jesus, we hear what you're saying. And here's their question. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And then Jesus answers, verse 27. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, verse 29. Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So you see what they're saying there? They're first asking, what, what, is the, what are the works of God? See, it, it, people instinctively know they're not right with God. Whatever your view of God is, you, you instinctively know if, if you believe in a God and you stood before him, you know you got something to be accountable for. And so you say, well, how do I work that out? How do I sort of get right with God? What do I have to do? What kind of works do I have to do? And they ask appropriately in the plural, what are the works? And then notice Jesus's response. This is the work. Singular. In other words, what I'm going to tell you, it's not a bunch of stuff to do. It's not a bunch of rules and regulations. It's not doing the Old Testament law. There's one thing that must be done. And that is you have to have belief or you have to have faith. This this one thing you must do is you must believe in Jesus. And when I say this, this might be a, a trap that you set in, you step into, and I don't want you to. And that is to think, okay, so what I hear the preacher saying is, I used to think I had to do some works. I, I had to get myself better and sort of do some things. And if I came to God and I did enough things, I'd be okay. And you get nervous about that. You should be nervous about that if that's how you think. You're not going to do enough. And so what I hear you saying is I'm going to trade out those works for faith. And so when I come to Jesus, what I'm going to say is, yeah, it wasn't the works thing, but here's my faith. Here's my belief. And the problem is a lot of times what happens is we turn that into a kind of work. And so you say, I have faith. In other words, when I came forward that one Sunday, I really meant it. I had my hands squeezed together tightly. When I said that prayer, I mean, I said it with a whisper. And I meant it when I said it. And so I know Jesus saw my hands tightly pressed together, my eyes tightly closed. He heard my whispering prayer voice that meant I was real serious. So so I have this faith and I'm going to give it to Jesus. And that's not the biblical idea of faith. And I, I don't want you to be caught in that. Uh, see, what gets someone to heaven 
is not their faith, but Jesus. Jesus gets people to heaven. And so what can happen is that Jesus is not primarily looking to measure your faith. He's not looking. It's not the measure of your faith that God is primarily concerned about, but the object of your faith. And that's so critical to have down. It's not the measure of your faith that God is primarily looking at. It's the object of your faith. See, if it's the measure of your faith, it's you. Got my hands tightly pressed together, my eyes closed, every head bowed, every eyes closed. I got all that down, said the whispering prayer. But it would be similar to like this chair. I could have great faith that this chair is going to hold me up. I was part of the decision of buying the chair ten years ago. I may have sat in this chair. It looks like a lot of these other chairs that are holding you up currently. And I could just, without question, sit down, no problem. I don't even think about it. Or I could say, oh, I had two helpings of sweet potato casserole. I don't know. This chair looks a little defective. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm nervous. I, when I sit down, I'm not sure if the chair is really going to. Please don't force me. You see, you can have a lot of faith or you can have a little faith. But what's holding me up? The chair. My faith is not holding me up. The chair is holding me up. Do you see that? And the reason I want you to really see this, and especially I've thought about the high school students right here on the front row, is that what God is primarily interested in is the object of your faith, not the measure of your faith. And if you make your salvation based on the measure of your faith, you're going to spend the rest of your life, like many of these people are currently doing, and saying... Oh, I'm anxious about my salvation. I just don't know if I've got enough faith. And that's not good news. That's not good news. What's good news is Jesus gets you all the way there. And what he wants you to do is just sit down and say, he's going to carry me the whole way. So that that the object of my faith is Jesus Not the object of my faith is my faith. And I'm afraid that many of you might be sitting here today saying, I messed up. I better recommit my life one more time. And you see what you've done? You've made you the center of your salvation. And it could be that your whole life has been built on following a fake Jesus, and that Jesus looks a lot like you. So we have to think about this, whether we're thinking about it for ourselves, whether we're going to talk to somebody else about it. These are big questions that you need to have. You need to wrestle these down in your mind before you talk to somebody, because you could give away this fake Jesus to somebody, and then they're following the same fake Jesus you're following. So as believers, as people in this congregation, are you, are you following after the real Jesus? Or are you following after the designer Jesus? Is what matters the object of your faith or the measure of your faith? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, there's a, 
a lot of information here. And it's um, now really up to you to take these words out of my mouth from the mouth of John, from your lips, and, and pierce a soul, help them see themselves, and help them to see the real Jesus. So, Lord, you do your work now as only you can do. May all hearts and minds and eyes be open to who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.